Hometown Ghost Stories contains serious and often distressing events and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This week on Hometown Ghost Stories. In 1988, a Pittsburgh family moved into the house of their dreams, but something ancient and evil would turn their dreams into nightmares. This is episode number 27, The Demon of Brownsville Road, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 1995. Bobby Cranmer put his hand on the little sliding pocket door between the kids' TV room and the foyer. It was a weird little door, only standing about five feet high, but it had a solid core and would block the noise just fine. Close it, hissed his older sister Jessica. He slid the door shut and turned to his sister and their three giggling friends who were spending the night. Their parents had gone to bed and expected the kids to do the same. But Bobby and Jessica had other plans involving caffeinated beverages and R-rated movies. As Bobby was about to walk away from the door he had just shut, a loud pounding came from the other side. All the kids jumped and scrambled to their sleeping bags, quickly pretending to be asleep. Expecting his father to barge in any moment, Bobby clutched his blanket and squeezed his eyes shut in anticipation. Nothing. The door didn't open. One by one, the kids popped their heads out from their sleeping bags. Jessica motioned for Bobby to go check the door. You do it, he snapped back in a harsh whisper, but she just glared at him until he got up. He cautiously approached the door and slowly slid it open. He looked left and then right. He turned back to the others and shrugged. The foyer was dark and devoid of parents. The others were crowded behind Bobby now, curious about the mysterious banging. They crept into the dark foyer and it felt like they stepped into a freezer. Before anyone could remark on the temperature... Rapid footsteps sounded off to their right across the hall at the top of the servant stairs. Everyone looked, but whatever was there was gone before they could see. The stairway was dark, and the top wasn't visible. As they all stood at the bottom, frozen in fear, the footsteps came back, louder and faster down the stairs. They all screamed and ran back into the TV room. Bobby turned to slide the door shut, but before he could do so, he saw a dark hooded figure striding across the foyer towards him. He couldn't move. The figure reached out to him. He shut his eyes just in time to feel Jessica shove him aside as she slammed the sliding door shut. I'm Dave Wilkins, and this is Hometown Ghost Stories, The Demon of Brownsville Road. The city of Pittsburgh is located in western Pennsylvania at the junction of three major rivers which helped the city become the industrial center for a growing nation. Most people recognize the city as being an industrial hub for coal mining and steel, but aside from that, it also played an important part in U.S. history. From the French and Indian War, to the Revolutionary War, to the Great Whiskey Rebellion of 1791, and the Civil War with its many underground railroad stops. 
The Civil War in particular helped boost the city's economy with the increased demand for iron and steel. In 1875, Scottish immigrant Andrew Carnegie began steel production in Pittsburgh, quickly becoming the richest man in the world while sending the steel industry into full effect, with Pittsburgh at the forefront. In addition to coal mining and steel production, the city of Pittsburgh also has a much darker history. There are numerous locations said to be haunted and countless reports of paranormal occurrences. The Pittsburgh City Tuberculosis Sanatorium, while not as infamous as Waverly Hills, still has a macabre history chock full of paranormal activity. Later known as the Macabre Marcy State Hospital, it opened in the early 1900s to treat tuberculosis patients. Records indicate hundreds of patients died within the building, and people have reported seeing their spirits lingering behind. The ghosts were said to roam the hallways and stare at visitors from upper-level windows. In certain wings of the hospital, crying, screaming, and laughter was reported. Just a few blocks from the sanatorium, just across the Allegheny River, is Troy Hill. Residents of this neighborhood are well aware of the hauntings of the old Troy Hill Firehouse. It's the city's oldest fire station and was closed in 2005 after 104 years. Footsteps and disembodied voices have been reported and believed to be ghosts of former firefighters who stayed behind to protect others on the job. People who have been in the building after it closed have reported that the voices and footsteps could still be heard, suggesting the spirits still wander the empty halls. In downtown Pittsburgh looms the 23-story Omni William Penn Hotel, but out of the 23 floors, only 21 are available to the public. The top two floors are barred due to them being haunted. In 1922, a traveling lingerie salesman by the name of Michael York found himself in the city of Pittsburgh for work. Lingerie sales would pay the bills, but just barely, so he tried his hand in illegal whiskey bootlegging. He wasn't a distiller, but he was a pretty good salesman, so he figured he could capitalize as a middleman. He had just picked up a telegram informing him that another one of his deals went sour, and now he was greatly concerned for his life, having angered a few dangerous people in the industry. He got into a cab and told the driver to take him to the Omni William Penn Hotel, where he said he was going to, quote, end it all if his circumstances didn't change that night. His circumstances did in fact change that night for the better. A woman he knew had some good news regarding a whiskey sale that could change everything for the better. She dialed the operator and had him connect her to the hotel, but the operator couldn't connect the call to York's room. The hotel manager entered the room and found York dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He had taken his own life just moments before the call came in. York is said to haunt the top floor of the hotel, but isn't the only spirit who's been spotted. An elderly couple haunt the 22nd floor. They have been reported to come into the room at night and drop their luggage in shock when they see you in the bed. Numerous people have claimed to see the woman do this and then exclaim, You're in my bed. It's mine because I was murdered there. There are many other haunted locations and reported hauntings throughout the city, but the most infamous haunting occurred at 3406 Brownsville Road. In 1792, a mother and her three young children were murdered by a group of marauding Native Americans. They were buried on the property 118 years before the house was built in 1910. In December of 1988, Bob and Lisa Cranmer bought the house after Bob was transferred to Pittsburgh by his work. But Bob wasn't exactly unfamiliar with the house. He was from the neighborhood as a child and remembers always having a fascination with that house in particular. In those early days, Bob would dream of living there and long to see the inside of the house. He was drawn to the house and he didn't know why. Life took Bob away from the neighborhood and into the army until 1986, when after the birth of their second child, the Cranmers decided that the military days didn't work for their family anymore. So Bob got a job for AT&T in New Jersey. 
They were there for two years when the company decided they wanted to expand into Pittsburgh, the same area in Pittsburgh where Bob grew up. The same week of the transfer, Bob's dream house went on the market. He originally planned on moving just outside the city, but when his mother called him to inform him that the house was going up for sale, he knew exactly which house she was talking about, and his mind was made up. The Cranmers put in a lowball offer, which the sellers, Mr. and Mrs. McHenry, accepted immediately without question. They found this odd, but went to see the house anyways. The Cranmers had four children by now. Jessica, age four, Bobby, age three, David, age two, and Charlie, aged two months. During the walkthrough, Bob and Lisa brought their two oldest children along. At one point, the McHenrys, along with Bob and Lisa, were heading down to look at the basement. Bob had noticed that the McHenrys were behaving unusually, but didn't mention it. He turned to say something to Lisa, but she spoke first. Where's Bobby? she asked, turning around. The basement was broken out into several small rooms and areas, so it was difficult to be sure if the boy was upstairs or hiding behind a corner. Have you seen your brother? she asked Jessica. She shook her head and stated that she didn't like it down there and wanted to leave. Bob calmed everyone down by assuring them that the boy couldn't have gone far and was in the house somewhere. Bob caught the McHenrys exchange an expression of concern. At that moment, they heard a frightened scream from the top of the stairs. Lisa fled up the stairs, pushing past everyone. As they ran up the stairs and down the hall, they could hear the cries grow louder. Mrs. McHenry reached him first. She grasped him tightly as she frantically looked around the room. What did you see? Did something scare you? The boy was shaking. Mrs. McHenry stood up and looked Lisa in the eye and told her, You really need to keep track of your children. Bob cringed at that comment, but didn't mention anything to his wife. A moment later, Lisa nudged him and whispered her concern about Mrs. McHenry's question prior to the rude remark, the one regarding their son seeing something in the house. Bob pulled Mr. McHenry aside and asked him if something was wrong with the house. Rather than qualifying the question, he responded quickly, stating, No, nothing's wrong here. We've even held mass here a number of times. Everything's perfectly fine. Mass in the house? Bob asked, somewhat shocked seeing as how mass isn't typically something that happens outside of a church. Oh yeah, Mr. McHenry replied, shifting his eyes away from Bob. The house was perfectly fine. It had only been a matter of weeks in the new house before strange things started happening. The first unnatural occurrence was so subtle it would have gone unnoticed had it not been so persistent. Bob opened the door to a closet and noticed the pull chain for the light was coiled tightly around the light fixture. Thinking nothing of it, Bob uncoiled it and continued with his task at hand. He returned to the closet moments later and noticed it was coiled up again. He called out to Lisa to see if she had used the light in the past few minutes, but she was outside at the time. He brushed it off as weird, but didn't consider it paranormal. Other annoying and inexplicable things would persist over the years, and the family generally ignored them. A few members of the family believed the house might be haunted, but didn't take it all that seriously. All of the kids were enjoying the new house, exploring enthusiastically, except for Bobby, who was still a little bit reserved after the incident on the stairs the first day. He started to come out of his shell a little as the days progressed, but when Lisa went to check on him one night, she found him curled up sleeping on the floor in his closet rather than in his new bed. She mentioned it to Bob, and he dismissed it as him just getting used to the new house. Bob would go on to pursue a political career in the 90s, first as a councilman, and later as a county commissioner, where he wasted no time making enemies of the Pittsburgh Police Department and other local politicians he suspected of corruption. Over the course of the next decade, odd things would persist. Shortly after the sleepover incident with the hooded figure, Bobby would experience another strange occurrence, this time in his bedroom, or the room that would later be known as the Blue Room. He was home from school one day, alone in the house, laying in bed, when suddenly 
His bedroom doorknob rotated, and the door clicked open. At first, he expected his mother, but quickly remembered she wasn't home. Then, in floated what he describes as a floating ball of electricity. The energy in the room shifted, and the temperature dropped. He clutched his blanket in an attempt to pull it over his head, but it was wrenched from his hands. The ball of electricity slowly exited the room, and he watched the doorway to see if it would come back. That's when he saw the cloaked figure walk by the open doorway again. He wouldn't mention this incident to anyone for years. Bobby slipped into depression and would rarely leave his room. He began dressing in all black and began obsessing over all things gothic. His two younger brothers followed his lead, and they all became withdrawn and angry. Bob and Lisa eventually moved Bobby out of the blue room and into their room, taking his former room for themselves. It wasn't long before Lisa would subsequently slip into depression. At one point, Lisa, Bobby, and the youngest child, Charlie, would all be institutionalized for psychiatric evaluation. Bob ended up leaving politics to focus on his family. Jessica would end up pregnant at 16, which Bob had a very hard time accepting at first, but very much enjoyed having a new grandson. In 2003... Bob's 88-year-old aunt would move in with the family temporarily. While she was there, everyone seemed to get along a little bit better. This was a relief to Bob, and even Lisa seemed to be back to her normal self, somewhat. Until one night, Bob and the boys had spent the day together for what they referred to as bonding time. But later that evening, Bobby and Bob got into an argument that turned physical. Bobby, who by now was about the same height and a few pounds heavier than Bob, attacked his father, throwing a flurry of punches. The two began wrestling back and forth. Bobby was bellowing in a voice that didn't seem like his own that he was going to kill Bob. Charlie jumped in and began attacking Bob as well, screaming that he was going to call the cops and Bob was going to go to jail. Lisa also tried to break the fight up and actually did call the police. When the police arrived, they arrested Bob and took him to Brentwood County Jail, where the officers, who used to be his subordinates as the county commissioner, now threw him in a cell with a few drunks and drug dealers. Bob made bail and went to stay at a friend's house. He got a call later that night to inform him that shortly after the altercation with his sons, his 88-year-old aunt, who witnessed the event, died shortly after of a heart attack. This was a major turning point for Bob. His family had turned on him. The Baptist church that he had been a part of his whole life had turned on him, and he had to move in with his friend's mother for a short time as he sorted things out. He moved back in in December of that year, and right away, strange things started happening again. The pull chain in the coat closet began doing strange things again, and the TV would turn on and off randomly. Bob decided to call Mother Maria at the Passionist Convent to see if he could get someone to take his concerns as seriously as he did. After explaining everything to her, she suggested the activity in the house sounded like demonic infestation. She referred him to the Passionist Monastery, where he met a priest by the name of Father Ed. Father Ed also took Bob's story very serious and said something that reminded Bob of the first conversation he had with the previous owners. He suggested having mass in the house. Father Ed didn't waste any time. He showed up and the whole family gathered to participate in the ceremony. It was brief, but Bob felt it had been effective. The next morning, Bob woke to find all of his framed artwork of Native American battle scenes had all been flipped upside down and sideways. He had collected it over the years and had it hanging throughout the house and stairway. He called Father Ed to inform him, and the priest suggested they have another Mass. The services conducted in the house continued over the next few years, and during these services, family and friends would witness crucifixes bend and warp, rosary beads snap and scatter, items burst into flames, water explode from faucets, and blood drip down the walls. Bobby was getting worse as well. He dropped out of school, 
and would attack his mother if she tried to get him to leave his room, punch holes in walls, and destroy furniture. Lisa had to quit her job at the University of Pittsburgh. Father Ed ended up referring the case over to another priest named Father Rob and a woman named Connie Valenti, who was a Catholic intuitive, which is basically another word for medium, although you'd never hear a Catholic use that word. Neither Father Rob nor Connie Valenti ever stepped foot in the house, but communicated with Bob over the phone. On one occasion, Father Rob told Bob to cover the mirror on the second floor and asked about a blue room. He, through Connie, told Bob that that room in particular, along with the basement and a closet on the first floor, were all evil, claiming that evil deeds were committed in the past. He then asked about a large tree on the property and told him that something terrible had happened there. One day, Father Rob advised Bob to reach out to paranormal investigators. This took Bob by surprise but he took the advice and sent an email to Ryan Buell of the Penn State Paranormal Research Group asking for their assistance. Ryan agreed to help and arrived with his team to join Bob and his friend Father Mike, who had recently also joined the fight. The paranormal group set up their headquarters on the third floor and strategically set their equipment up throughout the house. Nothing major happened that night, but the next morning, they noted their equipment had picked up various readings of paranormal activity in the house. Their psychic Julie instructed them that there was a hidden space in the center of the house that needed to be investigated. Bob confirmed that there was such a space through the back of the closet with the pull chain, but it was sealed off and he never attempted to access it. Ryan suggested they break into it. The team donned breathing respirators and head-mounted lights. They broke open the panel that sealed off the area. It was about four and a half feet high and covered in coal dust. The area clearly hadn't been accessed since the house was built in 1910. The team spent about an hour searching and discovered an amber stone, a skeleton of a bird, and three playing cards, the king of spades from one deck and the queen and a three of hearts from a different deck. They also found a hand-drawn picture of the house during a sunset, signed H.P. Malik. The other side had a sketch of an ugly man with a pig's head laughing at him behind his back and a snake coiled behind him. The edges were scorched and the paper was crumpled up rather than folded. Connie Valenti later said that the picture and the items were likely a malocchio, or a fire curse placed on the house, possibly by one of the workmen when the house was built, condemning it. The malocchio is the belief in the evil eye, placed on a person with someone else's jealous or envious of their good fortune. The investigation didn't result in much, and Bob opted to continue battling the demon with mass services in the house, and even resorted to playing Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ on repeat 24-7 to torment the beast. This would go on for years. He involved chief exorcist of the Archdiocese, New York, Father James Labar. Father Labar, Father Mike, Father Ed, and Bob decided the demon had to be exorcised from the property. Bob expected the event to be dramatic, but it was fairly mild and uneventful. They blessed each room in the house and called it a night. Father Labar did warn before he left to expect echo events to occur in the house for a few months following the exorcism, but not to be alarmed. Everyone left around 10 p.m. Things quieted down for a few months with just a few odd occurrences here and there, but this was to be expected. Until February 2006, when Bob saw the hooded figure again. He immediately called Father Mike to the house for an emergency mass. They set up in the boiler room where the dog had been frantically barking at the dark corner of the room. Bob's friend Kerry was also present during the ritual and recalled a hulking silhouette of a hooded figure in the corner. Bob began shouting loudly over and over, Demon, this is the end. You will leave now. Everyone present witnessed the figure melt into the floor and disappear. 
This is the end, Bob remarked. Let's go upstairs. Bob Cranmer believed he defeated the devil that day. That was in 2006. After that, he began looking into the story about the woman and her three children buried on the property. He hired ground-penetrating radar systems incorporated to survey the yard. Near the big tree that the Catholic intuitive had alluded to, they discovered the remains of four bodies buried vertically in a man-made 11-foot by 6-foot grave. In 2014, Bob wrote the book The Demon of Brownsville Road. Since then, Lisa slipped back into a state of depression, which led to their divorce. Their son, David, the only son who wasn't institutionalized for depression, committed suicide in 2015. Today, Bob lives alone in the house of his dreams. The house he refused to leave. The house he fought to keep. The house that called to him since his childhood. The house on Brownsville Road. What's up, folks? Welcome into Hometown Ghost Stories. I'm Jesse Wilkins. I'm joined by Rob Coakley. Hello, Rob. I'm uh, trying to get through this story and keep in track all the different variations of somebody with the name Rob. There's like Bob, Bobby, Father Rob, and then there's me. And it's just really confusing. The Rob Show. Welcome to The Rob Show. Dave, welcome into The Rob Show. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Rob is the main character. Yes. Well, always. As is tradition. So that's the uh, Demon of Brownsville Road. It's a solid book. Uh, I found it today on one of the uh, audiobook um, apps that I use. And I tried to power through the whole thing. I got through 20 of 25 chapters. So I feel like I did pretty good. But it is a, it's a crazy story. It's really interesting. It reminds me a lot of the Sally House story. There's a lot of parallels between the story and the Sally House story. Um, there were some things that I wasn't, I didn't actually keep in the, um, the story, but there were um, scratches in this one and scratches appearing on people just like in the Sally house and mm-hmm. scratches. Allegedly there's a video of uh, one of the paranormal researchers being scratched um, in real time, but I couldn't find the video. So I didn't put it in, but uh, there's that. Well, that's, that's actually, I mean, obviously that's ex- ex- exactly what happened at the uh, Sally house during their live in- investigation. Yep. And um, I another- said it in the Sally house episode that, that was like the strongest piece of evidence for me was seeing that happen in real time. So I'd be very interested to see that video if it exists somewhere. Um, yeah. Like I said, it allegedly exists, but I couldn't find it. The fact, the fact that I couldn't find it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but uh, I just couldn't find it. Another mm-hmm. thing is things bursting into flames <clears throat> in this house. There was uh, one instance where one of the kids was in his room and a CD flew across the room and hit the wall and exploded into a, exploded into flames. Um, so that happened. There was a couple of different um, situations where things burst into flames. So and that's another parallel to this one in the Sally House. That's crazy. Before, yep. before we dive into the house, because that's going to be the main focal point, I found some of the other stuff you brought up in Pittsburgh to start the episode really interesting, including the, the um, firehouse and the hotel. Yeah, the firehouse is a sad one. Um, like I said, I'll go story start with the tragedy. But, you know, you got the, the ghosts of the firefighters that are allegedly there to protect the, you know, the current firefighters. And then until they close the fire station down and now the ghosts still linger. 
you know, without a purpose. So mm-hmm. that was kind of a, a sad one. That is yeah. sad one. I found the hotel really interesting. Yeah, they yeah, still have the f- top two floors closed. Like, they yeah, just- they have the top. So the the story, I, uh, the website I got that story from, I actually looked it up to make sure that they actually were closed, and they do have them closed off to the public. The website for the hotel doesn't say that it's because they're haunted. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing it's probably it might be because they're haunted, but I'm guessing um, it's probably because they rent them out as like suites to private it or something. Two floors are completely closed, or only two floors are open. The top two floors are closed off to the public. Oh, I thought I thought it was the other way around. I was going to say like you're really not getting the most yeah. <laughs> out of your hotel. Keep the two floors yeah, open. Ridiculous. We've got twenty four clo- twenty four floors closed. <laughs> yeah, and two open. <laughs> yeah. No, that would that would not be a great business model, and you would be silly to keep that hotel open. Yeah. But them being on the top floor, like you said, it could be a suite situation. It could. You would also think that like if there was going to be a part of the building that was condemned, it usually starts top down. Right. So maybe there's some issues going on structurally up top as well. Maybe I'd like to think that if there were structural issues anywhere in a building that large, they'd shut the whole thing down until it was resolved rather than (laughs) just condemning two floors. (laughs) But who knows how uh, loosely um, it's Pittsburgh Pittsburgh zoning and (laughs) building regulations are. I actually, I've been to Pittsburgh and I actually do like Pittsburgh a lot. I think I talked about that on a previous episode. It's, it's a cool, it's like a miniature city. Like everything is condensed. It's not heavily traffic. Like you can get around real easily. Um, their sporting venues are right next to each other, which is super cool. I love when cities do that. It's probably jealousy from the Boston venues being spread out. Each other. Yeah, like well, like, Fenway and um, just to stay on the subject of the stadiums, that's actually the reason that he had to leave politics because he was a Republican and his voter base thought that they had that he had turned on his voter base by using taxpayer dollars to build a stadium. He mm-hmm. claims that they had the money to do it and they actually didn't have to raise taxes. Um, but that was actually why he left politics. So there was that and then a string of other incidents. There was one incident where I guess he was. Um, his son had gotten like robbed that like uh, some believed like took a knife from him, like his brand new knife or something. And then he went to go get it back and he confronted the kid like in an alleyway. A kid kept trying to get him to fight and um, he claimed nothing happened. But then the kid went to his dad. His dad went to the press and said that, you know, this politician is drunk and crazy and tried to rob my son. And, you know, like just basically the press ran with it. They ended up dropping the charges, but he, I think he got arrested over it. And um, I might be wrong about when he got arrested. I know he did get arrested. He got, no, he got arrested, but it wasn't for that. It wasn't for that. Okay. So, but that one, he said that that basically tanked his, uh, his reputation. And even when the charges were dropped, the press obviously never went back and amended the story because, you know, that's just the press being the press. But yeah. that pretty much ended his political. Or bit. if they do, they bury it, right? Like it's mm-hmm. front page news. The, the redaction is on page 30. So, this is what happened here with the uh, when he got into a fight with his son and got arrested. That was front news. That was front page news. And then when mm-hmm. they dropped the charges a few days later, page thirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just the classic example of what happens yeah, there. Media and politics, and I mean, he tried to take down like the whole police force. Basically, he realized that there was a bunch of corruption going on, a bunch of gambling, mm-hmm. underground casinos. And when he found out about them, he went to the police chief and was like, "Oh my gosh, we got all this stuff going on." He's like, "Yeah, we're not gonna." 
do anything about that. So then he kind of circumvented him and went straight to, I don't know if it was the FBI or something, but they had set up a sting operation, sent in an undercover agent who went to the casino, realized this is actually happening. And then they went and busted it and took it down. But basically him trying to take on the entire PD was a bad look. And uh, that was it for him in politics. Yeah, he ran again for mayor and he thought he was going to sweep the election because it was such a small election compared to the um, the county commissioner that he had won in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but like magnitudes of like 10 times smaller. And uh, he got smoked, like him in third out of three. And uh, seems like he, he wasn't making the right moves to win over the voter base, but he was trying to seem like he was trying to do the right thing. But mm. at that time, it's uh, I don't know. You know, just going against the entire police force is probably not the play politically. Yeah. So um, there was a lot to this story. And the uh, it's, you know, it started, they, the family moved in. There was a couple of things at the beginning that I left out that we can talk about real quick. Um, so when they, they moved in, everything was good. Right away, the kids felt uncomfortable in their new rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just wrote it off like, oh, this, you know, big house, big rooms. They're probably not comfortable there. You know, the, um, the oldest boy was sleeping in his closet rather than in the bed. That's um, that would raise some alarms uh, if that was my kid. But, um, you know, they're just like, oh, well, he's just being a weird three year old, whatever. Um, but. They were uh, Bob was out planting flowers in his front yard one day, and while he was planting them, he came across a small metal box that was buried and he pulled it out. He's like, what's this? And he opened up the box and inside of it were rosary beads and other religious artifacts so he's like, that's weird. So he called the previous owners, the McHenrys, which is actually um, not their real name. He changed the name for the book. I don't know what the family's real name is, but for the sake of confusion, we'll call them the McHenrys. And um, he called them up and he's like, hey, I found this weird little metal box buried in the front lawn with rosary beads in it. Is that yours? They're like, please just rebury the box. Yeah, they and didn't give them any context. They said, just just put it just back. Please, where you found it. Re- yeah, just please rebury the box. So it's like... <laughs> Oh, it's a little bit alarming. And they were, I mean, they were dropping red flags from the beginning, like back when they first looked at the house and they were going to buy the house. I mean, they were very standoffish. I I had heard that the house was in foreclosure and maybe that's why they were bitter. But all those things aside, you know, the first of all, you have the reaction of when the, um, the kid was in the basement and he starts screaming or whatever. Uh, Irish fridge. Thank you for the bits, buddy. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, I keep calling you fridge. Irish assassin. Thank you for the bits, buddy. Uh, so the kid went up the, uh, the stairs or whatever, and he's screaming and he's scared, but her reaction to it was not what's wrong. Why are you screaming? McHenry, the, the McHenry woman, her, her reaction was, what did you see? Did you see something? What happened to you? Yeah, exactly. So that's weird because she obviously knew that he must have seen something or she mm-hmm. knew what he saw. She knew what was out the, what, what might have been in the house and what he could have seen. So that that's a huge red flag. I believe there was something else during the initial inspection that was said that was also like a red flag to this house could be haunted and uh Yeah, well, they talked about the how they had mass in the house. Uh, oh, that was a big one. Yeah. yeah, and you had touched on on the episode but you know, the Catholic Church doesn't do mass outside the the house. And he knew that and he called it out right away and he didn't like confirm or deny. But basically that meant they they must have had some sort of exorcism inside inside the house or right. brought peace over to, to try to cleanse the house in some way. So, obviously right. so the Catholic Church takes exorcism seriously to the point where they won't just exercise any person or any house for any reason. They're like 
they'll do a um, multiple year investigation into it. And like, for instance, with the Cranmer family, they were like when they first initially um, had the priest come out to to look at the, you know, to see if it was a demonic case. He's like, yeah, we're going to look at this. And he's like, in a year or so, we're going to assess and we'll have a better answer for you after a year. So he's like, wait, a year before you can even start a year. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, this went on from, I think they, they brought the Catholic church in in the mid nineties and they didn't get the actual exorcist out there until like 2006 or 2005. It's insane. how I mean, I understand that they need to be thorough and this is the way that they've done things probably for that hundreds or thousands of years or whatever, but. Well, the church just doesn't like the press. They don't like. Right. They, they don't like the attention, but you got to think of if they take this stuff this seriously, you'd think the response time would be a little bit faster. Right. Because if it's, well, if it's, I think they serious. take it seriously because they believe in it, obviously. And mm-hmm. it's part of their, like, they have to, like, their main purpose is to fight the devil and the, the demonic spirits. So they, they have to do it because it's part of their religion, but they don't like the bad press that it gives them. They don't like that it makes them look like, right. you know, ghost hunters or. But putting that aside, and, and I'm not trying to refute what they do or, or, whatever. I understand that it has to be a thorough process because they have to look at each case and decide whether or not it's legitimate and worth their time and worth the bad press and all those kinds of things that we talk about. But at the same time, they do believe in it. And so they should know how serious it can get really fast. And for them to wait a whole year just to come out and take care of it, it's, it just seems irresponsible. Like the, well, that should be something well, they didn't wait a fast. year just to address it. They they investigated it for a year. They sent over Father, who was the first. They had like fifteen different priests. I think it was Father, probably Rob. My notes. No, it wasn't Rob. It, it was the. Uh, it wasn't Rob. It was uh, the first. The first one there, and I forget his name. Probably Bob or Bobby. Some variation of Rob. Yeah, some. They're all Robert. Robert. Story. Robert. <laughs> Bobbert. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Probably Robert. No, so just to just to piggyback off of that, it's it's crazy because by the time they are contacted, right it's going to be at the point that it's already escalated thoroughly. Nobody's calling the Catholic church because a book fell off the shelf. By the time they get to that point, shit's hit the fan, right? So to Jesse's point, it's like, well, yeah, it's great that they're coming once a week to check it out, but do something, just freaking do something at some point and help us out here. So the amount of evidence that like priests that came to that house, caught and documented and one of them i particularly liked i think this is a little bit later in the story but one of them was was pretty funny about it and uh he had a bunch of like funny comments when he first got to the house like he didn't seem like he was he was either had a sense of humor or he just wasn't taking it all that seriously and then uh i think it was actually a book that flew off the shelf something happened in the house that was irrefutable oh no it was like that wasn't the priest that was his that was his buddy kerry who was uh who came over here like a funny? He was just a funny. He was making light of it. Situation. Sure, yeah, no, I remember that story. I think there was also a priest who had a sense of humor. He came in and he was actually making jokes right away. And then he realized like, hey, this is actually serious and something is really happening. And the priest was really happy because. And forgive me if I, I might be confusing with the friend, but I'm pretty sure it was one of the priests because he said this was basically the first like paranormal thing that he's seen, something demonic that he's actually seen with his own eyes, and he had let him know that. And then he told him basically like this is uh this is amazing this is confirmation that the devil is real which is confirmation that god is real and this was like a, a huge moment for him and he was pumped basically because it's like okay maybe he had his doubts all his life doing his priesthood stuff and or being a, a priest or whatever and then he sees something actually happen right before his eyes and he's probably like okay 
good. It, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't all for nothing. This stuff is legitimate. So yeah. So just to wrap up the early on things that were like that pointed towards a haunting that they didn't really put too much um, thought into at first is when Bob went to his new job when they first moved in. One of his new colleagues said to him, "Oh, hey, you live in the uh, the haunted house. You bought the haunted house." He's like, mm-hmm. no, 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 because he's from the area, so he knew the street. He's like, no, you're, you're talking about the house across the street, you know, down two houses. That's the haunted house. He goes, yeah, yeah, no. He's like, I know that one's haunted. He's like, but your house is haunted as well. My father has a story from back in the 30s when they when they broke into the house and because it was um, abandoned at the time and something chased them out. So he's like, yeah, that house also has a, rep- um, you know. The reputation, reputation of the reputation that it's haunted. Did you touch much on the the other haunted house down the street? In the no, but I'm going to get in. I'm going to get into that because that's um, that ties into. There's a connection. The connection, yeah. There's a connection. So uh, fast forward, they uh, we you know they did the so paranormal state comes in right the uh, Ryan Buell's company, and it was actually before that was called paranormal state back when they were just um, the Penn State Paranormal Research Group. And they had uh, this medium named Julia, I think it was. And she actually never stepped foot in the house, but she was the one who was like, um, there were two different mediums. One was one was Catholic. The church. Yeah. Yep. And then there was Julia who was with uh, Paranormal State. And she had determined, they had figured out that the, they, they figured out that it was a demon and they figured out the demon, they believed it was, um, where is it here? Uh, that the demon was Moloch who was a Canaanite deity associated with child sacrifice. And um, this all tied back into the doctor in the house, right? Yes. So that uh, they started doing some research uh, into the history of the property. And they found out that the former owner, HP Malik was renting out the blue room to a local doctor who was known as Dr. M at the time. And during this time, abortion was illegal and Dr. M was performing illegal abortions in the out of H.P. Malik's house, out of the, the uh, story is that he was doing it in that blue room. Um, he couldn't do it in his own house for whatever reason. Well, for obvious reasons, I think like, you know, if you're a yeah. doctor running a practice, you're not going to do that stuff in your own house. But he rented out, you know, somebody unrelated, which ended up being the Cranmer's house. But Dr. M's house that he lived in was that other haunted house down the street. So that was the connection and the medium knew that connection and also the uh connie valenti also made that connection between those two houses which is pretty weird it is interesting and then the other theory i I believe one of the mediums came up with this was that whatever was left with the aborted fetuses he would actually burn them i think it was like either in the fireplace or a fire pit out back so you would just cremate the bodies in that fashion which is particularly gruesome and yeah, if you, yeah. I mean, what are you, what are you gonna? I mean, I mean, uh, is it though? I, I, it sounds it, but like, what else are you doing here? Like, yeah, what are you gonna it's do? Like, it's like when we talked them. about, it's like when we talked about the doctor that was burying body parts in the backyard, and we're like, oh, that sounds terrible. And it's like, well, what else is he gonna do with these body parts if he's, you know, performing amputations and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I, I. But it does. It sounds gruesome. Uh one thing I found interesting, did you guys hear about his, why he thought he was connected to the house? Since yeah, so after, age? after the fact, um, he ends up meeting Connie Valenti because he didn't actually meet her during the investigations. He actually didn't even know she existed. Mm-hmm. This was just Father Rob's confidant. Um, 
And after everything was done, I think when he was writing the book, he had, uh, he wanted to meet with father Rob and father Rob was like, well, I got somebody you should probably meet. Her name's Connie Valenti. You don't know that she exists, but she does. And this is the person who was giving me all the, uh, you know, Intel on your house. So she and father Rob had never been in the house. She was like, you got to cover a mirror. And she like described a mirror perfectly that they had on the second floor and, um, and whatnot. But he asked her, you know, did she why, say it reflected you... stuff? Was that, was that her description of the mirror? Like, yeah, it's, it's a mirror upstairs. It reflects things. It reflects. She's like, if you look into it, you should see yourself. You'll see yourself. Like, anything God, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, but she actually, I mean, she, she like describes like it's an oval. It's like, it stands on its own. It's antique. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. She described it, which is weird. Um, but he asked her why he, she thought he was drawn to the house. And she was like, well, if you really want to know. And he's like, well, I do. And um, <laughs> that's how the conversation went. He's very flirtatious on the phone. She says that he was, he was in a past life, one of the babies that was aborted by the doctor and he's back reincarnated. And that's his drawn. That's how he's, that's why he's drawn to the house. And he was like, Whoa. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, that doesn't check That's out. Because, hang on. I mean, unless there was a generation in between the reincarnation, but I would assume that a reincarnation would happen like back to back, right? With death brings life. Well, so unless he was so born you're, in you're now You're now talking about a Hinduist belief and you're conflating it with a Christian. With a Christian. So, what? Nothing. I'm reading a comment in the chat and it made me laugh. Oh, sorry. I thought you were laughing at that. I'm just not talking about theology. It's just these are two different religions. So this caused Bob to have some uh, cognitive dissonance where he was like, oh, man, I don't know. It was like, I have against my religion to believe in uh, reincarnation. reincarnation. But everything Connie said has been dead on. So and why why am I drawn to this place? So mm. to me, that's pretty wild. But I mean. Who knows? This whole story is pretty wild. There was a lot of theories. It all ties back into the doctor and what he was doing there. And later on, I mean, we can get into the later on hauntings, but I do want to touch on when uh, Bob was a child, or like 13 years old, punk teenager, whatever. They were, he was like a troublemaker when he was younger uh, until he found religion and then he became really religious. But I think it's because his older brother came by and introduced him to Christianity, whatever. But when he was still a hooligan, um, him and his buddies went up to the uh, the haunted house, not the one that he bought, but the one down the street. And um, they tried to kick in the door. And um, he went up to it. He booted it as hard as he could. Nothing happened. And then he said he went back and tried to do like a Mortal Kombat style jump kick. And as nothing happened. Or before, or before he actually jumped or whatever, the door just opened up by itself. And then they both got spooked and they just booked it out of there. Mm. And that was his first experience with something like seeming haunted because that door was jammed shut, super locked, kicked it, nothing happened. Then he runs back and the, the house basically invited him in, which was a pretty creepy story that he had from his childhood. And then um, the house that he ended that up buying. That was the house though, yeah. That, that was the house down the street. The house that ended up buying was a house that the, him and uh, his family used to like marvel at. Like this was their dream house, which uh, uh, D asked earlier in the chat, why didn't he just move? And I think it's part stubbornness. I think he, it, this was his dream house since he was a kid. And then he finally bought his dream house. And um, so he wasn't going anywhere. 
Yeah, this is one of my, this is what I would consider a character flaw on Bob's part. So to answer okay. Cash's question, no, he was religious his whole life. Um, he was actually even a. The question was, the question was, was he forced to find a religion because of the haunting? No, that was and, before. Oh, well, right. Rob's well, reading it out loud for the I'm for just the reading it out for the podcast. Right, right. I do, so I do forget. The answer that would be no. I thought, like, like I said, I think he was religious as a child and then he kind of lost his way in his, you know, punk youth era and then his brother reintroduced him to religion and there was well, a few circumstances that made him like really believe what the what the haunting did do though was it it helped him convert well helped whatever you want to say it he converted his religion because of the haunting he converted from a baptist to a catholic correct because oh, of the okay. haunting oh okay because of the i was gonna say yeah. he was religious before he was religious yeah but he yes, was a baptist one of the uh the, he and they wouldn't help churches him. Um, right. So we went to one of those churches that oh, like, really? get really into it and they speak in tongues and do all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they, so he was that, I mean, that's, that's how he religious he was, but he switched to, um, Catholic because of all the Catholic influ- influence throughout the haunting. But, um, this guy, yeah, he had some character flaws and I didn't really like him. <laughs> so when I read the book, it was, he's definitely, he was the main character. He was just the hero, you know, the, he played Passion of the Christ. He was like a big Mel Gibson guy. And he has, he's like, dude, they played Passion of the Christ for seven months, 24-7. Non-stop. This, I found this part of the book hilarious. And maybe it's just because it's Mel Gibson. But it was just nonstop Mel Gibson. And at, at times they would have it going in multiple rooms with mirrors facing the TV. So it would play into all corners of the room, too. It's just nonstop Mel Gibson. Now, it's not all Mel Gibson movies. It's just Passion of the Christ for the obvious reasons. But, uh, yeah, he was a big, big fan of that movie. And it, it, he said it, it, it was helping. It was calming it, things down. It's so bananas that that was like... Like, what makes you go with that's the solution? Like, oh, man, this house is so haunted. Got to find the right DVD to throw on. Try, try to entertain this ghost for a while. It, it's like he's they, babysitting. They, it was, so they, I think they just believed that anything religious was would kind of weaken the force. They, they, he noticed that, like, things calmed down around Christmas time because they had all their Christmas decorations up and whatnot. And then after after they took it all down, it started up again. So I think they just believed like the religious, anything religious would piss, either piss this demon off or kind of make it go away. It's it's the same principle as when my demon little brother, like would, when I would babysit him and he would just act up. And I'm like, what can I do to calm him down? Play the Lion King three times in a row and that'll <laughs> calm him down. So It's just like principle. me on 4th of July. I just play uh, Mel Gibson's The Patriot in every room of the house all day long. <laughs> Yes. That's not to calm anything down, though. That's just because I'm a patriot. July 4th. Uh, so uh, Stephanie's asking why The Passion of the Christ and not some other Christian movie. I think that he just liked the movie. And it, it, the timeline works out where that movie came out right around the same time all this was happening. So I think he saw it and was just – he was probably moved by it, um, you know, being a major Christian guy like he was. Um, he, that's probably why he chose that particular movie. This it might, have been, also, it might have been the only Christian movie he had on DVD, so he's like, all right, just fire this thing off. I was about to say, this is also, what, like 2004-ish, 2003, the height of when you were buying DVDs. So, like, <laughs> that's that's when that movie came out, so everybody was buying. It, it was like a weird time in history where, like, everyone was just like, can't rent movies anymore, got to buy every single DVD that comes out, got to go get it now. And yeah, so, that's right. Everybody so everybody had a copy. Yeah, we, all, of, like, we, all had a, we all had a good collection. I wonder if he had multiple copies of 
of that. Of that he movie. had the widescreen and the full screen version for sure. Because I'm cut. getting both extended cut. Yeah, so he to replay yeah. it. But he was saying that like he would he would put it on and um he would have it on loop or whatever, and he'd come home and the DVD would be out of the DVD player and it would be shut off. And he tried over and over again to obviously what anybody would do in this situation is try to blame it on people in the house and figure out who's messing with us and everything. But he said a lot of this stuff was happening when the kids weren't even in the house or when nobody was in the house. So this yeah. guy was playing passion of the Christ 24 seven for six months straight, trying to figure out why his family's all going insane. He's <laughs> getting shut off when he's not home. It's like, there might be a simpler, don't you dare shut off Mel Gibson. Nobody shuts off Mel Gibson. That, just, just, to, just to play skeptic for one. So I, I have a pretty big skeptic theory on this whole thing, too. So I'm going to toss right. it out there. It's this guy who is a devout, devout, devout Christian. Devout. Devout Christian. His, and just diehard Christian. His sons are rebellious, gothic, heavy metal listening, mm-hmm. um, rebellious youths. And he can't figure out why. And he's like, there must be a demon my sons are possessed by demons because why else would they be listening to this demon music and yeah, painting music. their nails black and they have studs in their eyebrows. Um, gets into a fight with one of them. Can't figure out why everyone's so depressed. Meanwhile, he's, you know, ramming his religion down everyone's throat. He's, you know, and then he's to the point where he's playing the passion of the Christ all day. And it's just, he's driving everyone sane. He's uh, into the politics. I think that maybe, you know, and then the the priests come in and they start feeding into it. You know, mm-hmm. that's saying, yes, that was a demon. The vibe I was getting the whole time. He was super religious. Um, they come in and, and feed the uh, abortion thing. You guys probably anti-abortion. You have all of these factors. And so that's the vibe I was getting the whole time. I'm like, this guy just sounds like he's making excuses for yeah. his sons being goth and things like that. But according to his book, the kids were experiencing these hauntings as well. And it wasn't just they're goth and rebellious, but they're also seeing the ghost. They're seeing the cloaked shadow figure and they're describing it the same. It would had um, shoulder length, black hair, and uh, it was about five feet tall, I guess. And so they were, they were experiencing the ghost as well. So if they're seeing drive their father insane that they resent and they're feeding into it and just maybe, maybe, but I think, I think if, if they were rebellious and they were anti-religion and, I'm not saying they were, I mean, they were, they were Gothic, but that one, one and two don't correlate, but they were doing all this. I think if they were rebellious and literally fist fighting their father over it, I think they would deny his story. And the fact that they go along with his story makes me wonder if, um, that, that gives a little more credibility to the story to me is that everybody was, everybody believed it. the wife believed that they're divorced. Now they have no reason to back up each other's claim. Um, I think there's legitimacy to it, but I, but his angle on everything may be a little skeptical and the so, priest also bought into also it. Also the way he beat, the way he beat the demon, you know, the exorcist couldn't get the job done. So I had to get the job done and I, I went down myself. there and I said, you get out of my house and it melted in the floor and the, yeah. and the, the, yeah, he beat the demon. Yeah. And, and by the way, if the demon, if there is really a demon there or was really a demon there, he didn't beat it. He lost that. He'd lost that. If you yeah. weren't, if I didn't make that clear enough in the end of my video that, you know, the demon, he earlier in the book, he was saying like uh, the demon was trying to get between me and my wife and he wants to end our marriage. He wants to split up this family. He wants, you know, if his, if his 
theory is that the demon wanted to break his family up and have just him. That's what happened. You know what I mean? Just to go back yeah. to Mel Gibson real quick. Uh, Cash had said this. I wasn't sure if he was joking or not, but he said he, he heard there was a lot of paranormal activities happening during the making of The Passion of the Christ. He said people on the set uh, of making the film were struck by lightning. Yeah, I don't remember the exact stuff that happened during that filming, but I did hear there was stuff that occurred while filming that movie. I'd have to go I, dig into it. I have to find out if there was one person that was struck or multiple multiple people. Because if there was multiple, then that's seriously like, what is going on here? One is um, still crazy. One is crazy, but two or three would be um, the odds would be against you. Just to, to wrap up what we were just talking about, um, we went over the fact that his wife and his children are, you know, had some mental illness and depression and stuff like that. Do you think that like part of this was his way to combat that? Were, were they actually seeking out professional help or were they just using this as their cure they were. kind? Yeah, they were. Yeah, when they, they, were they, they were institutionalized in um, psych, psychiatric wards and hospitals. Mm-hmm. It was the, uh, this, the mother and the oldest son and the youngest son. This okay. all correlated with, according to his book, when they would stay in the blue room. So for a while, I think it was Billy was his son. Bobby. Uh, Bobby. They're all Bob. Sorry. I don't even know why I get second guessed it. Yeah. Uh, but apparently when Bobby was staying in that room, that's when he was uh, seeing things and becoming really weird. And they had actually said in the fight that they had uh, when they got in that physical altercation, was that with Bobby and Bob? Bob and Bobby yeah. got in a physical yeah. fight. They did. Oh, yes. Sorry. When they got in that physical fight, Cash's comment. Um, Bob's reaction, uh, Bob, Bob's claim is that Bobby's, this is so confusing, is that his son's voice story. His son, yeah, yeah. His son's <laughs> voice changed and it came out like a demonic voice while they were fighting. And it's, he said it wasn't his voice and this was something otherworldly. And so if, if I'm supposed to believe that his son was possessed for that one fight. I'm not. I mean, I've every single demonic case that we've looked at, you have the infestation stage, the oppression stage, and then they get possessed. And that it's like a big drawn out thing. And you're telling me that like this dude, this teenager got into a fist fight with his father and that he was the only reason that that happened was because he was temporarily possessed by the demon. No, hmm. I don't know. I'm just I'm just going over some of the claims, but it all went back to the blue room is, is what I'm saying. So that was when Bobby was staying in the blue room. Then they switched for a little while. I'm not too sure why they switched, but maybe they're like, get Bobby out of this room. He can't handle it. And I think they switched bedrooms. And then when they were, when they had switched bedrooms, then the wife um, started kind of losing it, but she was saving face. I mean, on the surface, everything seemed okay. But his claim was that um, she was like spending money like crazy and then not paying bills. She was paying enough bills to keep the lights on and, you know, keep the heat on and everything, but she wasn't paying the mortgage to a point where they almost, for, they almost, uh, lost the house because of it. And then, uh, and then he got psychiatric help for her and everything kind of balanced out once they moved out of the blue room again. And then, um, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so oh, this, this comment. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, Henry Caviezel who portrayed Jesus Christ in the passion of the Christ during filming, he was struck by lightning accidentally scourged had his shoulder dislocated and suffered from pneumonia and hypothermia. So basically just a normal Friday night of Jesse DJing five years ago. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. 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 I, I'm, so I'm just waiting for the comments from cash on the dislocated shoulder. That's yeah. Cool. It happens to me all the time. Oh, he had said it earlier. So he said the guy who played Christ was struck and then uh, an assistant director was struck twice. <laughs> Dude. Okay. Yeah. That, that's actually crazy. That's insane. Yeah. 
Um, also, he said uh, from Cash, he's like, wait, are we talking about Bob or Bob? And or is this controversial Bob? Well, this is Rob, and I'm going to weigh on on the story about Bob, Bob, and Father Rob right now. So, are you guys ready? Let's go. Let's go. Uh, report. Yeah. <laughs> so what I also found super interesting, because I'll always find this interesting when we do a story that has this, the hidden room. Hidden rooms are my jam. It, but it seemed like he knew it was there and he just never opened it. Is that the way that it was presented by him? Kind of. It's like so at one point in the book, he was like he discovered the room mm-hmm. and he like pulled a board away and reached his hand down mm-hmm. and didn't go into it, put the board back. And then when the um, the paranormal researchers came in, their medium called after the first day. And she was like, hey, there's a weird ro- secret room in the middle of the house. Find it. She's like, that's your hotspot. And they were like, Bob, is there a weird secret room in the middle of your house? He's like, yeah, there actually is a weird secret room in the middle of my house. This um, is the biggest bullshit to me of all of them, because there's no way that I'm going to find a secret room in my house and not immediately get into that room. I found two of them in my, we found two of them in my house already. And believe me, the first thing that we did was go into them. Yeah, of course. So yes, secret room. You look into it, you check it out. It wasn't like a, so to be fair. And, um, I, I, I would typically agree with you except for the way this room is described. So if I like was like accidentally bumped into a bookshelf and it like whoosh, the wall flipped around, I was like, I'm, I'm going in. But <laughs> you got to get a candle was, first and going with this, the candle. This wasn't, yeah, exactly. Put the candle back. Um, you, this wasn't like a room room. This was a small space underneath the stairs that was like, could be like a half closet, but they walled it off. You know what I mean? So it's like it'd be like you find you opening a closet and finding like a little area behind the closet that's all dusty and being like, I got to go into this weird little dusty area. Maybe I am am the big bird meme booting down the door. I'm coming in that moment. (laughs) I found out you guys already know this story, but for the podcast, we were um, removing a medicine cabinet in my bathroom right behind me, actually, through that door in the kitchen. Anyways, um, so there's a very small bathroom. Clearly, it wasn't always a bathroom. And I took the medicine cabinet off, medicine cabinet out, and there's a hole in the wall. And I'm like, dude, what? And then I look in the, the hole, and there's a staircase. And I was like, no fucking way. And um, yeah, first thing I did was crawl through that tiny hole and go right in it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course. You don't not go into the yeah, hidden room. In. And I found, some cool, I found some cool things. So it was like a really old rug. And I was like, I got to pull this rug out for two reasons. Uh, number one, to see what's underneath it. I mean, obviously just stairs underneath it. But I, was, I found some cool old pictures and old coins and stuff in there. And uh, the, their staircase led nowhere. It was walled off at the top. Mm-hmm. But the second reason I was like, this rug needs to go is because I can smell the rug through the wall. And we'd always oh. wonder, like, why does this room smells so like moldy so i pulled the rug out but we found that one and then the other hidden room that we found was we were renovating the bathroom last year and um they had knocked down a wall just to uh they actually didn't even mean to knock down they were just demoing the the bathroom and when they demoed the the wall behind the bathtub uh it just led to a whole other room and there wasn't anything exciting in there there was some hay which i found interesting but this is on the second floor i don't know why there was hay up there but you still have the hay I never took it out. The hay's still in there. So I did. But of course, same thing. First thing you do is go in, right? We renovated the apartment I'm in now. And when we were expanding the bathroom, we found a hidden like three by three room. 
and there was a letter in there from either the 1910s or 1920s that we found, which was kind of cool. cool. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, in the attic upstairs, I actually framed the uh, the document that we found. But uh, underneath the floorboards, there was a drawstring that led uh, into the floor. And when you pulled the string, there was a, a deed to the property tied to the other side. And we it was from, I think it was like late 1800s, if I remember correctly, maybe 1850. But this is we, a weird way to store your deed. So protect it from a floor, I guess. No? I don't know. It's tied to a string in the floorboards of the attic. But anyways, we uh, we framed that, so it's hanging up in my house. I'll show you guys one day. But we need to do a um, a haunted host episode where we just go through and like do a haunted dwelling of all three of us. Because your my house is haunted. Mine house. used to be a funeral parlor. My house was built in the 1940s on top of an existing foundation that exists, which is way older. So it could be, there could be some cool stuff. Yeah. Do you have anything ever happen in your house that's fun? Uh, no, but if you ask Kate, you'll probably get a different story. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She thinks everything's haunted. Well, let's get back to the story. So, point being, hidden room, no shot he didn't go in there. Yeah, of course. You no go in shot. the haunt. Yeah. You find. Yeah, yeah. A, you find a hidden room, you go into it, no matter how dingy or small it is. Right. You explore. Yeah. Because that's your right. house. Uh, they found bodies in the front yard. That's wild. Oh, yeah. That's something we should get into real quick. Yeah. They, he, he, so he used, so he you found find a the, gra- You find a grave in the front yard, you go in. Yeah. You go in. That's what he did. He, yeah. he, that's what he did. He, um, he, you, you know how he uh, found the uh, grave site? He no. used dowsing rods. So I heard the, about that. Yeah, the dowsing, he had the dowsing rods, and that pointed him to the tree. And he went over there, and he was he called the um, the, the ground radar company, and was like, "I think that some stuff is buried here. Can you come out and look?" So they came out, and they confirmed that there were four four bodies, uh, or the remains of four humans in a I had in heard a made grave that the bodies weren't there, but they had found that there was a grave where bodies had already been exhumed and it was, maybe that's what it was. Yeah. It was consistent with other sites where bodies had been exhumed from a grave, which means there once was bodies there, but I don't think there was anymore. Yeah. That that, that could be true. I mean, it sounds going off. Interesting. Extremely interesting. Yeah. So that would um, almost kind of validate the, uh, the, the very, the, the the story about the woman and her three children that were murdered back in the late 1700s in that area. So if we're going, to, if we're believing everything in the book, which obviously we're we're pretty skeptical about a lot of it, because he really did make himself out to be like the absolute hero, and he does exorcisms better than the priests and all this kind of stuff. I'm skeptical skeptical about the story overall. But if you believe everything in the book, there were so many insane coincidences uh, that connected one person to another person, and this person knew something that they never should have known. Um, I, I just keep going back to the Sally House that had so many similarities with the Sally House where. Uh, the mediums were, they just knew stuff that they shouldn't have known. And people were like, okay, you got to go to this room, the blue room and people that have never seen the house. So there are a lot of things that are kind of unexplainable. If you believe the stories that are in the book and there's a lot of people that corroborate his story that were connected with it. So if we're going to believe everything in the book, let's just say the big, the everything is truth from the beginning to the end. What is haunting this house? What is it? I think you have, um, you have a demonic entity that was there pre-existing humans and demons uh, exist to create havoc, to create chaos, 
And that's what it was doing, right? From the incident in the 1700s where the family was murdered up through maybe it was dormant for a little while and then maybe it was conjured back up when the worker put the curse on the house, um, you know, with the, uh, the, the Malachio, the fire curse. And then it starts ramping up again with the, um, you know, H.P. Malik and, uh, and all of that right up to when the McHenry's lived in the house and they were, you know, allegedly tormented enough to sell the house and then and the Cranmers. And then him digging up the uh, the box that the McHenry's seemed to know about and we're like, no, nah, put that shit back, bro. Fucked up. Yeah, but they, they buried they, it or they discovered it. That family did come out after and uh, refute all of his claims about them. Sort of. The, it was the kids. Well, it was the kids. But. So the kids who were very young at the time yep. that are adults now um, refuted it, but it was the parents that would have had the experience. Right. It was the parents that were like skeptical, not skeptical, but were like. Are we know, talking about the goth children? No. No, no, no. We're talking about the, family the, previous, before. the previous family. The McHenry family before. Yeah, the McHenry family. The ones and who it's like, not really confirmed or denied that they. I mean, it seems ominous the things that they said they could have just been bitter that they were leaving their house so there isn't like he never heard it from the McHenry's that like hey this place is haunted but he they they had implied it so there there isn't much to refute it's just like I got the feeling from them from the strange way that they presented certain information that this place could have been haunted but not everybody's comfortable talking about that stuff either because of like fear of being like ostracized or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it took years for my grandmother to, to ever share anything that happened in the Bridgewater house with me. Right. Like she would just say little things and wouldn't expand upon them. I would just be like, Hey, this, she goes, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, I've heard that before too. And then finally she started telling me what actually happened. Yeah. She was always very casual about it. Uh, yeah. from from my conversations with her. Yeah. So uh, some people, they're going to react to it different ways. And, and you see a lot of people that hold back these stories for a long time out of fear that they're going to look like a crazy person. Right. And things happen in my house every day. And I don't tell, I don't tell anyone because I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, you were here last night, Rob, or the night before and something was going nuts in the kitchen. And I thought it was one of the kids up and I turned around I'm like, oh, no, never mind. Just the ghost. Yeah. I thought it was the dog freaking out or something. It's like, ah, no, 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 just ghost again. Yeah. yeah that's just my house for you. But, but people experience that stuff all the time and either they chalk it up to something normal or they just don't feel like talking about it. And that might've been the case with this, with this family. But while we're uh, starting to wrap this up, is there anything else you wanted to hit on Dave before we get out of here? Let's take, let's take a little vote. What do you guys think? Real or fake this guy's story? Of all the stories we've covered, even though there's stuff in here that I find interesting, I would say that this is one of the ones I'm more skeptical about, to be honest. Dave? Concur. I agree with Rob. Yeah. I'm I'm skeptical, but just because of how many people were connected to it and like I said, all I've done is read his book. I would like to hear other people's claims that were connected with the story. Um I think he is giving himself too much credit, but I, that eh, it's up there. Yeah. It's, it's, you want to believe it because it does have, it does mirror other stories that we've covered with certain (laughs) aspects of it. Right. Um, But the way he presents it 
leaves a lot to be desired. And that's why I think I told you guys right away that I, I looked at this with a side eye. So maybe he just he doesn't seem credible. I, I'm just going to say that he doesn't seem I, credible. He doesn't problem. at all. If I were to bet, like if a, I were to bet a significant amount of money on it, I would I would lean towards fake. He's a yeah. fanatic, and it's his. Um, he's still he's nuts. He's still nuts. He believes that the demon is responsible for breaking up his marriage. He believes that the demon is responsible for his son's suicide, which his son um, he left. He joined the Marines. He was in the Marines in uh, during you know early two thousands. You got to figure he probably served overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I don't know, I have no idea whether or not he had PTSD or what, but I mean, that's not uncommon. It seems but, a little little shitty of him to chalk it up to the demon. And yeah, I just what I he may have experienced. Disingenuous, yeah. and I thought it was, yeah. I'm yeah. Not, it, clearly, this guy's family wasn't on board, and he, he let his family go through all of this. Um, he had me until he single handedly funded the movie. Yeah, you got to read it out loud. We have it, a podcast. If it wasn't if it wasn't on these on screen and not read out the comment, that, if it wasn't on DVD, and he wasn't just playing DVD over and over again, to read he would have he would he would have been the sole contributor for that thing, getting millions of hits over the years. Like, wow, the passion's still doing really well. Like, ah, no, it's just Bob. It's just Bob in Pittsburgh. He's driving out his demons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, like, you know, I don't ever want to discredit anybody or say that I don't believe anybody because you know you just you don't want to but of all so like for Amityville I went into Amityville fully expecting to not believe any of that story and then when I started reading interviews with the with the couple and their reaction and things that they said they felt genuine to me you know what I mean so this guy I'd have to look into it a little more with him and Maybe find some more interviews, but I listened to one interview with them, and I don't know, man. I just I'm real skeptical with it personally. I will say that the there's a couple podcasts I listened to, and one of them that did interview him, they said that they found him very credible, and they had said that with a lot of the interviews that they do, if they don't find him credible, they just throw out the interview and they don't even air it, and they're like, "This guy seems like he was straight up legit." So well, could be cre- could be credible. It's good. Maybe, maybe we just need to investigate the house and see for yeah. ourselves. Yeah, just show up. And apparently the, the one thing, the other thing that I will touch on is this was another one where it seemed to follow them. Like him and his wife had tried to do a little getaway and uh, they had some something happen. Like I think she got like unbelievably sick and they're just like, all right, forget about the vacation. We have to go back to the house because you can't be away from whatever's there or something. Mm. Maybe she just got sick, but I don't know right. if there's anything that else that happened on that little trip, but. Did he bring the DVD with him? I I don't know. <laughs> he should have. It didn't have. To, it doesn't have to follow him. He still lives you, there. You know, he brought that up on the vacation. He's like, this is because I didn't bring the passion. I didn't bring Mel Gibson with us because you wouldn't let me. You wouldn't let me bring Mel Gibson on vacation with us. Yeah, that's yeah. gonna be what it is. Anyways, uh, what do we got coming up next week? We are gonna be going to Savannah, Georgia. Jesus, Shannon. Yeah, Savannah, um, Georgia. That's a good one. Yeah, I'm still working out what to actually cover in Savannah because there's a lot and it's going to be it's going to we're going to be doing a part two, probably a part three of Savannah because it is one of the more interesting towns slash cities in the country. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't notice I didn't say most haunted because I'm sick of saying that, mm-hmm. but it but it is an interesting town. So we will be uh, multi-parting that not all together, but, you know, in the future, there'll be another one. Nice, nice. And then we have um, 
the next horror movie review will be Conjuring 1 and 2. I believe I'm going to join you guys on that one. So you are. We shall see. Yeah. We shall see. I'm going to rewatch uh, the second one because I haven't seen that one in a long time. I watched the first one a bunch of times, but we'll rewatch the second one. I'll join you guys on that. And then a little yeah. Curse, Curse Possession episode coming up will be the the Chair of Death. I had to do this one because it's, yeah. so, it's so ridiculous, but it's actually a fucking cool story, and there's a lot tied to it. And, this um, week's um, first... So just to completely cut you off, this week's first, uh, this week's side content is the first celebrity hauntings story that we're doing, and that's going to be Bonnie and Clyde. I had no idea that there was hauntings tied to their uh, their insane death, but we'll go over that in the episode, I suppose. Yes. Very cool. Anyways, uh, the way you support the show, if you like it, is uh, drop us a five-star review, either per- preferably on Apple Podcasts, but if you uh, listen on Spotify or wherever you listen, do give us a review. But if you have time, swing over there, do that. Also, for audio listeners, and there are so many more audio listeners than there are people who watch these videos, do swing over and check us out on YouTube in your free time because we do put a lot of work into these videos and editing and filming a lot of the stuff ourselves. So make sure you guys check out our YouTube channel and um, give us a uh, little sub there and check out some of the video work. And um, for people who are interested in get this content early and some extra bonus side content. If you uh, jump on Patreon, you get a lot of the content early. So those are the perks that you get there. I want to tease October. Can we tease October? Yes. So we are about six months from Halloween, just about. And for the entire month of October, we plan to have something every day of the month, whether it's an audio um, short episode or um, a cursed object or whatnot. Um, there's going to be something every single day. And as we compile these, it's going to be available on Patreon early. So if you're a Patreon subscriber, or if you want to be a Patreon subscriber, you will have access to all those videos early. Everyone's asking about Salem. Yes, we will absolutely cover it. We're going to save Salem for, uh, wow, that's a lot of people asking about Salem. Salem, Salem. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be good. I think, I think Halloween night, I think that's when we drop a big old Salem episode. Maybe Hollow's Eve drop, Salem part one, Salem part two, Halloween night. What do you guys think? We'll talk like about that. it. We're we'll just tossing we'll out the about. idea now. I came up with the idea now, but I feel like that would be a good night to drop the Salem episode because uh, that's going to take a lot of work. So I'm excited about it. I'm excited about October. Obviously, it's very early to talk about that. We got a lot of things coming up before then. We are halfway to halfway to Halloween. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to, if you want to come see us, we are actually going to be at a paranormal convention next month. Um, the weekend sure. of May 21st and 22nd, or 20th and 21st, <clears throat> we will be on the USS Salem in Quincy, Massachusetts at a paranormal convention. So come by, say yeah. hello. So not in Salem, but on the USS Salem. Yes, it's in Quincy, Massachusetts. That's where it is docked. It How is confusing. It, it is. is. Very it is. confusing. Assassin uh, says, uh, I know all the best places there to eat, and the traffic will suck. Yes, the traffic always does suck. We go to Salem all the time. So yeah. I think we missed this year, which was pretty sad, but... Uh, We'll be posting this on your social media. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I don't know if we're we'll going live from the, from the event, but uh, it is open to the public. I mean, you can buy tickets and, and show up and come see us. We'll have a little booth there and setting up with some of the other paranormal groups there. Yeah. And we have one five-star review to read this week as well. Nice. Um, it's a great balance of campfire story. And, I think it, the rest of it is like historical fact, but uh, it says this podcast is in its raw form. It's still finding itself. And I think it has true potential. If you think a little bit of fact versus fiction, if you like a little bit of fact versus fiction with campfire twists, 
worth a definite listen. Five stars. So it's thank great, you for that. Great review. Terrible, terrible job reading the five star review. But I, know, five I, star really, review. I really, I really blew Sorry, that one. We're going to bring Rod to a doctor. He had a small stroke, but yeah, I, had to, I heard my fine. name too many times tonight, and it just really threw me off. Absolutely. Anyways, everybody who uh, swung in, um, Pauzy, thank you so much for Cell Truth. Thank you so much for the sub. Drop that right at the beginning of the stream. And Assassin, drop some biddies. I appreciate you guys. So we'll be back on Tuesday. I mean, we'll, we'll have a, a side content episode for you out on Friday, but we'll be back on Tuesday, every Tuesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, YouTube, Facebook, Twitch. We'll see you guys uh, next time. Thanks for watching. <laughs>